0: I'd like to, I have a couple questions. You threw a lot of stuff in your book about obviously quantum mechanics, light, the science piece. You mentioned near-death experiences, which I wanna interrogate you about because there's some really interesting theological overlays there. The first thing I wanna ask though, uh, there's actually two big questions on my mind when I was reading your book and just following a little bit of what you're doing. There's an NT Wright quote that goes something along the lines of when Jesus is talking about God, he's talking about himself, and when Paul is talking about Jesus, he's talking about God. That's the quote from NT Wright. If I if I get that correctly, uh-huh.
1: that sounds like some yeah that, that sounds, sounds, yeah right, it yeah. sounds
0: like something he would say right. And, They're laughing. I don't know why whether... <laughs> And I think that there's a, there's, a, there's a really decent tradition of all of this stuff, including panentheism, which, by the way, we should probably define and make, make sure people understand mm-hmm. exactly what you mean by panentheism. Um, but you're also a Bible scholar, and there are, there are seemingly some clear delineations about who Elohim is, who Yahweh is in the scriptures that are the grounding pieces of what it means to be a Christian or to be a follower of Jesus. And sure, we might happen to be X number of years uh, removed from all of that. Um, But if it keeps, I suppose, evolving and changing and Mm -hmm. and shifting and moving, and let's say we find out something post-quantum mechanics that gets to string theory and then Um, And then near-death experiences is part of that, where death is this ultimate image in the biblical tradition of the thing that you are fighting against, or at least it's the metaphor of all the stuff that's bad and evil. And if you now accept near-death experiences as a positive thing, and a lot of the near-death experiences are telling us that maybe death isn't the enemy, there's something within all of this journey that you're on that feels to me... um, incoherent to Mm -hmm. some sort of core central piece now I I don't have a dogmatic dog in the fight per se but I am kind of curious how you might wrestle some identity of what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be a follower of Jesus or if that's even up for grabs I suppose in the midst of all this um, right yeah philosophizing that you're doing
1: Um, I I'm not suggesting everybody can live this way and I don't actually recommend it, but I can't help how I'm wired either for me The whole like theological quest or task is curiosity and discovery where we settle with convictions, but sometimes those convictions bend a little bit too and so I don't think of—I mean, you're not saying this—but I don't think of theology as the thing you get straight, and then you go on and do stuff. It's something you wind up doing your whole life, right? So to almost any question, I again, this is just the way that I'm wired. I I say, yeah, can we look at it from another angle, and what difference does that make? And that goes for pretty much anything, you know. Um, in terms of you know, you know the the. I think the way you put it, Kevin, that like the grounding in Scripture of the nature of God, for example. What I, what I struggle again there always is with historical particularities as a biblical scholar, and how God is multivalent in in the Bible. It, it's it's you know the way God is talked about, the way God is understood, is. I mean, if, if if you go to the Bible with the question, "What is God like?", you're going to get a range of answers, not just one answer, right? So, I have to factor that in. At least I do. I feel I have, nobody else has to, but I feel I have to factor that into any time I open my mouth about anything. Um, I do, you know. I do believe that Jesus is different. You know. I mean. I think Jesus was. You know, uh, the Son of God, which is, what does that mean exactly? The Son of Man, what does that mean exactly? But I think, you know, in the cross, what we see is, I think, the ultimate um, curveball in terms of what God is like. That's the way I would put it. Because you have now God participating in vulnerability. Um, You know, a lot of, not all of the Hebrew Bible, but a good bit of it, Uh, is, there's an honor-shame dynamic that happens, which is understandable. What you don't want to do is shame Yahweh, because Yahweh doesn't like that, if you shame Yahweh. And there are things that have to happen. Sometimes God responds retributively and things like that. In, in the cross, and by the way, I'm not so stupid as to drive a wedge between Old and New Testament. That's not what I'm trying to do here at all, right? But there are trajectories and movements and changes, I think. And the idea of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aligning God's self with the last thing you would do if you're trying to start a new religion. Which is get crucified? That makes no sense, right? So, I what I like about this, it's paradoxical, and it shows us something. And this gets to Tom Wright's quote a little bit. You know, it's we're seeing something about what God is like manifested in how Jesus acts. I would probably nuance that in about ten different ways the way he puts it, but still, I mean, it's it's okay. You know, Um, I'm not. I would. I'm not sure if. In Paul, when, every, when he talks about Jesus, he's talking about God. I, I, don't, I don't see that. I see the risen Christ is Lord for Paul. And he talks about Jesus the way maybe in places the Hebrew Bible talks about Yahweh. But he doesn't simply equate Jesus with Yahweh. I, I don't think that he does. I, I think that's a, that would be a misreading of Paul, in my opinion. Right? And I think Jesus also makes a distinction between himself and his heavenly father as if praise to him and things like that. So I just, you know, we're getting into Christology here, folks, which is enough to make your eyes glaze over real fast, that in Trinitarian theology. But I think um, I, I think that we're, we are in, uh, and I think this is a beautiful thing, I do think, again, we're in the realm of what is going on here and it's okay not to understand it fully but we get to think about it and then get to try to like i said live like it too which is the whole point of this you know so i want to live you know that cruciform life as people put it which is very hard to do because i like myself right but to live in such a way where i'm not the most important person on the planet right having a family tends to help you get that out of your head right but not completely so, you know, there, there, are, there are all sorts of implications for the stuff that I'm saying, but, you know.
0: Would you call yourself a Christian? Oh, what yeah. do you do with that word?
1: I do call myself a Christian. I don't, I don't try to label it beyond that because it just puts borders up with people. I don't want to do that. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm Christian, and that's, that's what I believe. And we can talk about what I believe and why I believe it. But that's, that's the framework for my whole life. Yeah. It is. You yeah. know? Th-
0: there's a centrality in your work with the person of Jesus, and even like what you mentioned, mm-hmm. that even, you know, Christology is a big fancy theological word, but it just simply means like, who is this Jesus person? What right. was the Jesus teachings? What was that way? And how does that tradition influence the course of history? Right. right? right. Exactly. And there's still something really critical and important there. Um, Tom Holland in his book Dominion, I don't know if you've no, gotten a hold it, no. of that yeah. yet, but he's a British historian who has. Uh, from a fairly secular perspective, uh-huh. kind of identified what is it that made the West, uh, Western culture, uh, what it is with its morals and its uh, principles and its. And he's like, it's Christianity. It's there's mm-hmm. a there is a core historical element to that, and I think that's part of what's uh, this big inquiry in my mind with so many people kind of jettisoning religion and. Both inside and outside of it, both as a Christian you know becoming less and less you know tied to your denomination or your church or, right. or both outside right. saying disdaining the entire thing that they're historically and especially as a bible scholar this this is in, interesting to me still seems to be this historical core about who jesus is and and for all of the the you know, deconstruction and reformulation that we're all doing, mm-hmm. historically, there were Jews, historically, there were Assyrians, historically, there was a Jesus mm-hmm. and a Paul, and what they did as the foundations of the world that we have seemed to be really critical to continuing the development and the advancement of, of human rights and of right. justice and things mm-hmm. like that. And if um, some of the projections of theism of God become more and more separated from that, I suppose. That's, that's I guess, the question that well, I just Yeah, I
1: think that's a very valid question because the, let's say the historical grounding was not really questioned for the first 1600 years of the Christian faith. And the problem that I see is, you know, you go back to the Protestant Reformation, for example. I'm boring all these people talking about the Protestant Reformation. You know, John Calvin. Anyway, um, but they made all sorts of arguments about the, um, the historicity of Scripture. And most if anybody who's been a part of the Protestant world is an heir to the Protestant Reformation in some way or another, the thing is that when you put all your eggs in the history basket, and then you find out history is a heck of a lot more complicated than just what the Bible says, right? And it's, it's you know, geology started things in the 18th century, then Darwin, of course, but just archaeology, you know, and it, it makes things a little bit more complicated, and so there is, um, l- let, me, let me put another angle on this. There is continuity in the Christian faith. And that continuity has a historical rootage. There's also discontinuity. And I think part of theology is working out those two things, right? Um, it's hard to think of, for me, it's hard to think of God in a way that fully reflects the biblical portraits of God. It's hard for me because I have different questions because of my humanity and where I am. Now, again, I love the Bible, I love the tradition, but it is a tradition that evolves, if I can use that word again. I mean, the the Christian faith has moved and diversified, and it's not because people hate Jesus or anything, it's because they're trying to figure out reality. You know, and I, To me, again, that's an exciting thing for me, but why I should never be a pastor. And I'm saying that only half kidding. <laughs> it's just, because it's just, it's, it's I, I, like, I like dealing with the ideas. They, they, they're life-giving to me. They're meaningful. But not everybody likes ideas, you know, and that's fine. Yeah. I understand that, and that's perfect. You don't have to be like me. Don't be like me as a matter of fact. Yeah. yeah. In
2: in your book, you argue that whoa, you got the um that the biblical text is actually filled with curveballs, right? Mm-hmm. That the ancient Israelites, early Christians, etc., early right. followers of Jesus, they're all having to reconsider and rearticulate their faith given the experiences they're in. Where right. is God now that we've been exiled? Is there a God? Does God come with us to Babylon? Does mm-hmm. God stay back in the house that's been torn down? Will God's presence come back in the renovated house? Will it only be this one? Will it be in the one? I mean, yeah. they're having to ask all these questions, and right. they're asking it in Jesus's day too. Right. You can hear those questions being asked then, also after the death, burial, resurrection. Right. Mm-hmm. So earlier at lunch, you pointed to me and said, "Incarnation, resurrection, go." <laughs> and I'm bringing it back yeah. full circle to you. Right. And I, because I think what we're asking about when we say, "How do you?" Mm-hmm. You, you identify as a Christian, these mm-hmm. are core tenets of the Christian faith, and you discuss them in the book beautifully, mm-hmm. and I think bring them into places of mystery, right? right. When you talk about the cosmos, then mm-hmm. you, and the current lived experience that you have with the science mm-hmm. that we have, with all right. of the other experience, you still are going to wrestle into that, that reality and the mystery still meets incarnation. Yes. And so yeah. I would love to hear you speak a bit more. I mean, I think for many of us, I am I am the pastor, yes. um, and I don't mind the questions. Yeah, I know. And you're more than welcome. <laughs>
1: um,
2: and I, but I, and I think it was Rachel Held Evans who used to say, "On the days when I believe this, right, and then would speak, right, mm-hmm. um, wrestle down it, incarnation, resurrection, go."
1: Well, um, okay, when. If I were to ask somebody, do you believe the Incarnation? And they say, yeah, of course, obviously. I'm like, people have done a lot of thinking about this. And there, by the way, there's no answer that rocks your world kind of thing. But just, you know, I, I have, again, as, as somebody who thinks in, a, in, in terms of the nature of biblical literature, right, where do we read about what we call we would come to call the incarnation? We see it in Matthew, we see it in Luke, and the stories are very different. You know, if you ever go, do you guys do like Christmas pageants with little kids? And do you? nope, good for you, um, <laughs> because what they always do is they mix Matthew and Luke together. You have the angels, you know, and the wise men, and they're they're two different stories, and they, have, and the reason they're different is because they have different theological agendas of what they're trying to get across. That's just the way they wrote. But, you know, Paul, I don't know if I'm Paul. Like, incarnation is my lead. That's what I talk about. Doesn't mention it. Interesting. Just. Don't worry about it. It's just he doesn't mention it. You know, in Romans, he talks more like, you know, according to the flesh, a descendant of David, but declared Lord by virtue of resurrection. I think for Paul, everything was rooted in resurrection, not his birth. He didn't talk much about his life, right? And then you have Mark, who like skips the whole thing. There's no birth story in Mark, like whatever. Like, no, 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 Mark. But Luke and Matthew are probably using Mark and elaborating and expanding on that. And then John just gets into like Genesis language and cosmic Christ and the word and stuff like that. Like he can't be bothered with this stupid like birth story. And I just find that interesting. See, when you ask me about incarnation, I don't go to creeds, I go to the broader tradition as I understand it. And I say, okay, I have to wrestle with this. I do think that the language of a virginal conception is the gospel writer's getting at something that would have been understood in their day to talk about, this person's different. Um, but, you know, there, there are sort of incarnation stories elsewhere, you know, in, in ancient religions. And that's, um, and so there, there, I mean, one way of looking at it, I don't actually think this, I don't know what I think, but it's an idea, and I've flown all this way, and I'm going to ruin you as much as I've been ruined. But, um, you know, the whole... Um, the, whole, the matter of the Incarnation is, in, in the New Testament, in my opinion, using currents of thought to talk about other important people and applying that to Jesus. I would say the same thing about John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. That's, this is Neoplatonic language. It's philosophical language where the Word is like an emanation of the divine. And he's saying the emanation emanated, oh, and became flesh. That's the twist that John puts on it, right? So I, I think the to, to reduce Christology to do you believe in incarnation the way we've heard it in church, for example, or whatever, and that's the only thing you think about. To me, it's like I think we're selling a lot of things short too. There
2: isn't that the scandal though, right? Mm-hmm. Because many people would die to become God, right? So Caesar has become God. These right. other people, but the idea that somebody would that a God would become flesh.
1: Right. Yeah. This
2: is a crazy, That's crazy. thing to talk about. Right. And and yet I would argue that in the Hebrew Bible we see an arc of God with us. Yes. Invariate. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising then mm-hmm. to see that pushing through. When I think about Paul, I think you know his first encounter with Jesus is on the road to Damascus, mm-hmm. right? maybe, maybe he ran into him earlier and we just don't know about it. I mean, right. You'd think he would have bragged about that. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and when he meets Jesus, he meets the risen Jesus. He mm-hmm. meets, he doesn't meet baby Jesus, like, you right. know, Talligate was that, Talligate Dear Jesus, dear baby Jesus, dear six-pound baby Jesus. Like, he, Taligate, uh, right? <laughs> he, he meets the resurrected Woo. Christ. Anyway, and yeah. and that's, that's what changes mm-hmm. everything for him. And that's his curveball moment. Right, and even as we've been talking at Spark oftentimes about deconstruction, reconstruction, whatever everyone's doing, like mm-hmm. maybe we're just all having Damascus Road experiences. Yeah, right. where maybe, the person yeah. that we thought we knew mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be Jesus. Um, is distinctly different, or our understanding of right. him is different. And than
1: then, what him. Paul sees, what does he see? And that Damascus was a light, and he hears a voice. It isn't like Jesus walked up to him and said, "Hey, Paul, how, how's it going there?" It's, it's, it's. You could put it in the in the category of mind-numbing vision, right? That, you know. And later in Acts, he doesn't see anything, and, hears, and, and there's a different thing in Acts later on, but. Um, yeah, I, I I think it's that very thing brings us into mystery, and and again, I f- folks, I don't use mystery lightly. Like I know a lot of people like mysteries for anything you're too lazy to think about. Not a mystery of God, you know. I I don't use it that way. I just it's it's actually it's to me it's a profound reality that is inevitable, right? So. For me, mystery is not a get out of jail car talking about this stuff. I just keep being led back to that. And again, I'm, I'm very thankful for that. It's it's not it's not graspable, but we get to try. We and get to do part stuff of like our this.
2: Ancient tradition, right? I right. mean
1: mm-hmm. from the
2: Hebrew Bible to say, hey, when Solomon's praying, come and be in this house, even though you can't be in the house. I know. You're too right. big for the house, right? right. So from <laughs> all of that to right. to early Christian tradition, which right. we talked about earlier, right? Exactly. Mystery right. is part yeah. And an expected part of our story.
1: Right. And it should be, um, I th- it, it keeps you humble, is what it does, which is a good thing. Paul talks about that a lot, too, right? So, and it should be fronted, I think, more than it is. And, but it scares people because that's what people say, hey, don't take the Bible seriously. But I'm like, I think I take it pretty seriously, and it's all over the place. So You know. I got a PhD in it. Well, that doesn't mean I know everything. Well, yeah. close. I'm working on it. I, know, I need another week or two. I'll be fine. Um, but no, the thing. I, I mean, oddly, you know, honestly, um, and I think Danielle, you can you can uh, ascribe to this as well. The more you learn, the more you realize. Oh, jeez. That's know. why when you're old, they'll call you senile. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they do now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Uh, Megan, uh, let's go to the questions. Megan, come on up. Um, I, this, she has a question about mystery, which I think is there's very much in right, mind. Megan. Thank, thank you, Megan, so much.
1: Don't make it too hard.
0: Thank you I am a big
2: fan, so I, I d- see the I don't shirt. Know. Thank yep, you I yep, had the to like. rock my shirt. <laughs> okay. um, so my question <laughs> is, what does it look like to have faith and believe God is fundamentally mystery, or what are the implications of giving up certainty? And I'll also pitch something Kevin tells us a lot about time we talk about God, we are anthropomorphizing as we are trying to figure right. out how to describe God. So what does yeah. it look like to believe in God and believe God is fundamentally mystery?
1: I think um Depends on what you mean by believe. Not to be a jerk, okay? But the thing is. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, Clint. But, you know, I, I, first of all, I, I would argue pretty strenuously that believe in the biblical tradition is more, more of a trust word than a content word. It's like we, we use belief like, what do you believe? And, which is a good thing, but I think in, in the Bible it's more trust. So, that's where I would go with that question. It's like, how can I learn to trust God every day? But you don't even understand God, obviously. <laughs> Who does, really? But I, I want to sort of very existentially try to live into that mystery. and 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 seek god's presence around me, you know, I sometimes just sit there in the dark and not think about stuff, which is hard for me to do because the brain doesn't shut off that's not a that's a character flaw by the way, you know, and it really is. I verbalize everything i i i I put everything in, in forms of ideas and concepts and things like that, and that's not always good. I have to be reminded that my words are just playthings almost where I fool myself into thinking that I know what's happening here. And I need that in my life, right? So for me, this is not a hard question to answer. I I need that. But I've gotten to this point too, right? It isn't something that I just woke up one morning and said, I think I'll be a totally different person. It 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 moved slowly over many, many, many years. And so I'm I mean you, you pose the question almost like either or, but I just see them together automatically for me. Yeah, so I hope that helps a little bit, but um, yeah, anyway. There are some
0: amazing, uh, Melissa. Uh, sorry, uh, Melissa, Brandon, come on up. Uh, what's, and then I'm gonna ask Patty to come up after Brandon, because there's some questions about how you actually interact with people who do not hold to your particular view, right. and having those conversations. Where is this Come Brandon. on up, Brandon.
1: There is Brandon. Hi. Um, as someone who doesn't appear to subscribe to biblical literism, literalism, <clears throat> how do you handle conversations with those that do, when necessary, and uh, without burning bridges, if at all possible? Right, right. It's, I think no. I, I appreciate the question, and part of that is, you know, I say I'm not a pastor, but I, I am by default. I teach college students, right? Who show up thinking things, and then you have to gently talk to them about the Bible, and they're trying to figure out how to do their laundry for the first time, and you're taking (laughs) ultimate reality away from them, right? So, um, you know, I I basically try to affirm where they are, but also saying there's a much bigger picture out there we can explore. They have to listen because they're in college, but I still have to be careful how I say it. But in other contexts... Um, A lot of it depends on whether I know the person or not, too, right? And whether they know me and trust me. And we can have different kinds of conversations, but the bottom line is I don't... um, I don't think it's my job to make people think like I do. Because I may think differently in five years about some of this stuff, too. I'm just sort of throwing it out there, saying, this is where I am, can you relate, do you want to talk about this stuff? Um, And there are people who don't want to talk about it. And there was a time in my life when I wouldn't want to talk about it either. But I am talking about it because something happened, a whole bunch of stuff happened, that has driven me to a point. And I think to respect the journeys that other people have, where they may have to get to that point, and It's it's sort of nice when people might not be interested, but five years later they track me down and They say I remember what you said. Can we talk about that because something happened, right? I, it has to come from them and not from me, so I, I don't I actually don't like arguing with people I like arguing with people when we're of the same mind, and it's sort of fun but I don't like I've been asked to debate like apologists like I'm not going to do that ever. Why would I do that? What's the point of it? Who's going to win? me? But nobody's going to know it. <laughs> I'm kidding about that, but um, you know because it's, it's like it's, it's that polarization thing that I, I don't want to do. It's not a competition. I. I, I, I s- yeah, <laughs> I so now feel
0: the impulse to invite you to a formal debate with William Lane Craig now it's like, oh, no. okay so now, we're, now, we're, now we're, that needs to happen
1: <laughs> no that's not going
0: to Pat, happen Patty <laughs> would you mind asking your question because I love what she's uh, asking here
2: yeah so really related to what the last one was is have you found a way to throw curveballs at people who've never recognized the curveballs that have been thrown to them <laughs> so they're living in that life of certainty
1: um yeah, I do that. You know, I do that a lot, actually. Um, but I, I think I do it with some circumspection. And teaching, the teaching context is different. But um, I'll call on students to read things, and I know what they're about to read, and I know they haven't thought about it, so we have some fun with that, right? So, but it's 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 meant to 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 um, drive them towards curiosity too about this faith that they have, right? But but I don't. I mean the thing is, okay, you got the whole online thing, you know, the social media and stuff. And sometimes people just show up, I just want to punch. Because they're not people of goodwill. They're just trying to make things and I'll go after them a little bit. I probably shouldn't. My tag team of therapists said I shouldn't do that anymore because it's not healthy for anybody, but But for people who have honest questions and differences, that's a different thing entirely. I I, I definitely hear what you're saying. I know. I I look at it this way, but you know, you're welcome here to think differently. So, um, yeah, I I, I actually don't want to be a part of any sort of a polarizing thing. There's just too much of that, and it's. I think there's anything that Christians can do now is to not do that.
2: Yeah. Uh, your example earlier in your talk tonight about the progressive revelation for, uh, regarding slavery between Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. This is a, an example of maybe a way in which you could gently introduce somebody to: Did you know that things seem to shift and change on this?
1: Although and I would say, have you ever read this thing? <laughs> right. No, 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 no. <laughs> right.
2: Right. I mean, what do you? Have you? Are you completely biblically illiterate? Right. Okay. Have you never read these things before. Um, but I, I think that that's where I've found. Room for right. a, in a genuine conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, well, let's sit and look.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: well, now what do we think? And right. what yeah. could be happening here? Right. Right. And that mere example of sort of progressive revelation that's happening within the text for the mm-hmm. ancient Israelite. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, now what do we do now that Jesus has been crucified and resurrected? Right. We have to for for the right, right? now. What are we going right. to do? So there's this. Now we're going to understand it. We now understand this to have been happening. Our experiences in our life mm-hmm. cause us to do the same thing, hopefully. Right? right? right, right. And so those curveballs, I think, Patty, that you're mentioning,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I've found some people aren't ready. Right? right? And that's an okay thing too, yeah. and we can be patient with that. But there's a gentle, have you thought? What mm-hmm. if?
1: Let's take And, a and look. the context has to be a beneficial one. Like, I'm not going to track people down. Hey, sit down over here. Have you ever seen this? You know, that's right. the, that's not what you're talking about. It's more it's in the context of something else. And if people are curious, why? That seems heretical. Why do you believe that? And I said, well, you know, here, here's why. Here's the thing that got me starting to think about this a little bit, right? And that's that's a, that's a way of being not polemical about it, right? And not polarizing. Right? Just here's I mean, I really try to take that attitude with most things that I do. Here's what I think, you know, uh, could I be wrong? Yeah, of course I could be wrong, but this is what I think and here's why. And, and maybe you haven't thought about some of those things and maybe now you can. Well, what's, what's the purpose, though, if you're going to upset people's lives? Well, I don't want to upset people's lives, but this shouldn't be anything to upset your life, I think. You know, I don't think it should be, th- that's not what the point of this. And teaching college students... You know, we have this sort of a joke at Eastern, where Eastern's a great place to have a faith crisis. <laughs> because your, fa- your, your colleagues and your faculty members understand it. I'd rather have it happen now than at 45, right. when it's like, all of a sudden, like, you're in midlife, and now everything's falling apart because... Maybe this or that didn't exactly happen the way the Bible says it, or maybe there are different voices for talking about God, things like that. There are four Gospels, by the way. They don't always agree, right? So, um, and the, but if you're sheltered from that, it's, you're just asking for trouble. So there's, there's an obligation. This is the tricky part. There's an obligation to expose people to things so they can start processing some of these things differently. So.
2: I mean, you, you touch on that when you talk about your privilege. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Your own exposure to certain realities started to shift and change even right. your theological understanding. Mm-hmm. I, I've had a similar experience mm-hmm. years ago. I think um, early on in, you, in your book, you talk about how things were changing for me and I liked it. Now, that's maybe a personality flaw or gift, <laughs> depending upon who It is what it is. Right. it is. Let's what it not is.
1: polemicize this here. <laughs> right? uh.
2: um, not everybody's ready to like it. Right? right. But that, what we talk about often at Spark is that sometimes these questions can actually, it can feel very unnerving and mm-hmm. frightening when it starts to occur. Right. And you can start to think, but, w- but wait, I'm on solid ground, why would I want to move to quicksand? Exactly
1: right, yeah, right.
2: But we would argue and have argued here at Spark, perhaps where you've been standing is actually quicksand. Yeah, and the question can help you move to something a little bit more solid,
1: or it's solid ground, but you're right. like in a, a a a bit of ice, and it only and you're in the middle of an ocean, yeah. and it's getting warmer. So do you want to, do you want to get out of that, so, right? So, I, I think yeah. mystery
2: helps when we get there because if we believe mm-hmm. that God is bigger than our understanding,
1: right. Well, you know, we uh, just you know, uh, just one anecdote from Eastern. There was a student who was sort of sick and tired of Christianity and the Bible, but they have to take Bible courses, right? Um, So we're talking about the Gospels and how the Gospel writers have different perspectives on how they present Jesus. And she said to me, this is amazing. Why? Because this is actually adult literature and they're thinking about what they're saying, right? It's not the Sunday school answer, so it, it gave the historical thing gave a dimension to her that she needed, yeah. right? But for other people, it's like, hold on here. <laughs> I remember the flannel graphs when I was a kid and none of this stuff, you know but it you know th- that's part of the the, the the tricky thing is we're dealing with you know conservative Protestant iterations of Christianity which tend to... Really circle the wagons rather quickly, you know. And
0: it feels like that. Um, it doesn't feel like
1: that is said enough. You you mentioned this
0: is adult literature, mm-hmm. and it does feel like those other conceptions are just infantilizing these texts that are yeah. incredibly intricate and. Profound mm-hmm. and, yeah. and things. We, we were talking about certainty, Ashwin. Um, I want you to come up and you ask your question because uh, I, I think that's touching on the question mm-hmm. of certainty and, and standing firm. Right. So, Ashwin. Yeah, you mentioned that constantly letting go of your beliefs is a good thing, but shouldn't we eventually be able to ground ourselves in something firm? Uh, letting go all the time makes me feel like a sieve where the mesh is so large that it never catches anything. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so well, I think really there are things that we should be... I think letting go is a part of the Christian life. But like I said, too, I mean, I, you still can have convictions amid that, right? But it's, it's growing into where exactly is the solid ground. Like for one example of a solid ground mm-hmm. is the Bible is always accurate historically and there are not multiple voices in it. That's a solid ground that can give way pretty quickly, I think, right so I think it's 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 a theo- it's an interesting theological discussion. What is the solid ground, what does that look like? and you know for me, where I am, i'm just as a placeholder, the solid ground is the reality of God to me, that's the solid ground which i don't understand, but that's the solid ground that I have at this point, you know but i'm 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 evolving too. You know, I, I I'm not. I don't. I didn't think this necessarily 10 years ago. I don't know what I'm going to think 10 years from now. <laughs> when yeah. you
2: say the solid ground is the reality of God, is that reality of God though informed by your tradition, your faith, your text?
1: Exactly. It's it's informed by well, we get to the Wesleyan Quadrilateral here, which I like. It's informed by my tradition. It's informed by my reason. It's informed by my From scripture itself, and it's informed by my experience. Those things are all sort of working together, and the things that's that's the little secret I think that people don't talk about enough. Like what we think about God really is informed by different things working at the same time. If I were living in 14th century France, I'm not sure I'd be articulating things the way I'm articulating now, and that's I mean I realize that I don't I don't feel like I've I'm reaching some pinnacle of knowledge of God. I'm just given who and what and where I am. How can I make sense of this to myself, right? And I don't do that despairingly. To me, that for me, that's not like oh no. I'm like oh goody, (laughs) we get to think through some of this stuff, right? And and um, yeah, but it's it's not necessarily something that everyone would gravitate to. But again, we've been talking about that. That's fine. You know, um, a, a question I get a lot from students is like, or just when I go places and speak, I'll get a question like this. Um, I hear what you're saying. I think I agree with this, that, or the other thing, but I had meaningful church experiences where people believed the exact opposite of what you think. And what do you think of that? And my answer is always: those are real. Those are real experiences because God can handle that <laughs> the same way God can handle me, right? So it's, it's, it's okay because I think God is present in all those iterations as well. You know, It doesn't have to be a certain way of thinking. I'm just exploring and trying to understand God in, in a way that, again, makes sense to me. And, and that's not me like throwing the Bible under the bus or something. It's like we're all doing that. In, in one way or another, we're all doing that. We might just not know it.
2: It, We teach a class here at Spark called Garden to Garden, and Mm we go through Genesis through Revelation, Mm
1: -hmm. uh,
2: basically chronologically, um, in very short time, five months. And at the very beginning of our sessions, um, I'll often ask people to remember to reject idolatry. Mm -hmm. And that's step one. And that means that we are coming to the text realizing That we're worshiping a God of our own image, of our own making, and that we at least need to have enough humility to come and realize we might meet God in a way we haven't yet. That there's more to discover. Mm -hmm. in And for us, the boundary is the text. Mm -hmm. We're reading it in ancient Israelite narrative, right? We're reading it in Second Temple Judaism narratives and then in Asia Minor. And so that is informing it, and yet the humility that pushes in Mm -hmm. is to say, and there might, there's more here than I can know.
1: Right. And the thing, I mean, the analogous situation with Judaism is that Judaism is grounded in the text and <laughs> in the creative engagement of the text when you have... I mean, it's, it's a valid question to ask. What do you do with laws when you don't live in the land anymore? Or have a temple. And then now you're living in Poland. How do you sac- like What does it mean to be Jewish? So, you know, alms and prayer and, and things like that, that comes up. I mean, Judaism developed to account for differences and changes. And, and the Talmudic tradition um, is the continuation of engaging the biblical tradition over time. And I would say Christians have done the same thing. I've, I've, I've said this, you know, I'm not sure if I actually agree with myself, but it's, it's fun to think about. Um, the New Testament is sort of like a Christian Talmud, right? Because it's like, what do we do with all this stuff in light of Jesus? So you start thinking creatively. And I would say the whole Christian tradition is like a Talmud. We keep adding layers and layers and layers and layers, and that's not bad. You know, the, the, the church creeds are... Midrashic events, as far as I'm concerned. They're, they're creatively engaging the tradition and putting it in the language of Greco-Roman philosophy, which I'm convinced neither Paul or Jesus would have understood.
2: And I think just, can we uh, define Talmud?
1: Oh, yep. yeah. The, uh, the, and, and Midrash. And everything else. Uh, 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 well, Midrash is... Um, well, it's two things. It's actually a corpus of written material, but it's also a, a, a way of approaching texts, Where you take an ancient text that was written in particular circumstances, and you bring it into your own lives, into your own existence. And um, Paul does that all the time in the New Testament. He takes the Hebrew Bible, and, and he brings it into the scope of Jesus... Where, I mean, people have had this experience. I don't know if you've had this experience, but my students certainly have. Here's Paul quoting Isaiah in Romans. You go back to Isaiah, and it's like... <laughs> how the heck did he get this from that? He got it because he's Jewish. That's how he got it, right? Paul was a Jew, and he thought it was a Jew, and he was a creative reader of Scripture to contemporize it, to to bring it into what's happening at that moment. Scripture is useless if it doesn't touch you. It's not just a story about the past. It has to be brought into your present, which is Midrash. That's that creative way of engaging text. So, and, and the Talmud is the Jewish tradition of basic, I mean, I would, this is, you know, very truncated, but I would say it's something like, okay, so how do we be Jewish now? It's dealing with their scripture and their tradition and their changing opinions, and watching the rabbis debate each other. And in Talmud, like Rabbi so and so says blah blah blah, huh? Across centuries. Across centuries, and some think other ones are crazy, but it's all there, right? Because it's the conversation that's there. And Rachel was was Ray Held Evans was good at saying about how. That disagreement, that debate, that moving, that movement of theology is an act of worship because it recognizes the mystery of God. Christians have not always, they have, I mean, for much of the medieval period, they were all over this, but in the modern period, in the Reformation and afterwards, where John Calvin basically said allegory is satanic. And anything that's not a literal reading of the text, and you get one meaning from it, there's only one meaning to the Bible. And if you don't get that meaning right, you're in trouble. And so he basically threw 1,500 years of Christian tradition under the bus. And I don't think it's helpful. I, I think that the, the, the it, we keep going and talking about it. Christianity has, it's not just biblical. Christianity has traditions. And some would say there's a grand tradition, and then there's other little traditions. I don't know about that, but it's, that's the way it is. You know? So when we ask things like, how do I think about God today? Well, the Bible says, but how do we think about God today? How can we have a conversation between an, an ancient past that's rooted in a book where the writers didn't have the foggiest idea of what we're dealing with today? And to say nothing's changed means I don't think that's accurate. I think a lot of things have changed. And God is real. And God's not, we're not changing God for our own likes or dislikes. We're trying to understand the mystery of God in light of where our experiences are pushing us to think a little bit. Yeah.
2: I think mm. I, another rule that we have for garden is ask first what it meant to them, yeah. and then you can ask how it applies to me today or right. how it applies to our world today. Right. So there's still a grounding in mm-hmm. historical biblical criticism and mm-hmm. land and space right. and time, right? Because otherwise we get to fanciful, imaginative
1: applications and, and today that can be pretty it, brutal. It puts you, doesn't it put you in some conflict with the tradition or various kinds of traditions? But that's that's part of the grand conversation. That's not... You know, if you say to somebody, I'm not sure if the Nicene Creed is really helpful in this line or that line. How dare you? What do you mean, how dare I? That's our responsibility. Or we're, advocate, we're actually advocating our theological responsibility to think through things.
2: I, I think Kevin's done a really good job at, at um, bringing this, a lot of the stuff into the modern day. You had a conversation years ago with Kevin Kelly about providing a catechism for artificial intelligence for robots. And I thought, at first, I'm like, wait, what? What are we doing? Like, a catechism for robots. And then as we start talking about it, I'm like, yeah, we absolutely need that. Right? We need to be able to bring the text and our theology into how that robot is going to behave in our world. And by the way, like, I really just like to read about ancient... Judahite toilets in Lachish. So like I just, I don't know, yeah. if, but that, that, that's why, but that bringing it into the modern day is really <laughs> right. important.
1: Right, exactly. And that's—and I, I think that's our responsibility to do that. And you know, wh- when have you gone too far? You'll, you'll know that at some point, but you can't know it beforehand. You have to, if the if, if situation's there, we have to think about it.
0: Well, I, so here's, I, so I'm, I'm wrestling with a little bit of attention here, Pete. You, and then good. There, this is one of the, it's
1: good to wrestle no, with tensions. No, I,
0: I told you, some uh, friendly <laughs> fires is coming your way. I told you. um, so one of the questions here is, uh, this is anonymous, so the person uh, didn't, doesn't want to speak on the microphone. Totally fine, by the way, no shame here. Uh, if our conceptions of God can change with our experiences, how do we avoid deifying our pre-existing ideas and creating God in our own image? Right. And the paradox or the tension that I'm, I'm sensing here is, Sure, we are malleable. We're flexible, and things move and they change. And there's midrash, and there's right. Talmud, but yet at the same time, there are certain expressions of Christianity that we would denounce, such as any marriage with white supremacy and the racial component. You know, through early American history, um, there are certain literalistic, misogynistic strains of interpretation. And in many ways, that, that is the danger, or I shouldn't say danger, but that is the fundamental risk and reality of recognizing that there's flexibility in tradition. and tradition. So I think back to Ashwin's question a little bit and to this person's question, there's, this has been my just kind of constant... I don't feel like I can have that certainty because that doesn't exist, but yet the alternative is to recognize that there are these other expressions of Christianity that are incredibly damaging, painful, Um, could we call them actually anti-Christian in many ways, because if you don't establish some ground, some established historical core, some central thesis that drives this is what is Christian. Therefore, that can't be. If you are, if you are being misogynistic, if you are being hateful, if you are being racist, if you have these, if you're trying to codify prejudice as your doctrine, that is that is against Christian. Right. So we have to be able to say some of these things, um, and I kind of want you to now talk about that.
1: Well, I, I would say that those convictions don't come straight out of the Bible. They come. As a result of theological thinking that develops over time, too, because there have been Christians who have—I mean, you could make the case within the Bible itself. You don't look kindly on outsiders. Certainly, don't marry them, unless there are other passages right. where you do marry them. But you know, it's—it's—it's. It's, it's, there's a diversity in the text. But um, um, let me put it this way: I think, first of all, it is—it is, it is a paradox, and it's a very good question because. The the tendency to want to be binary is difficult, and to hold the tensions is difficult, but I think that's important to do. Um, The reason I think TV preachers are crazy is because they're greedy, and because they're polarizing. And I would say that's contrary to the Christian faith. And I get that from trajectories of Scripture... Um, and Christian tradition. That's. I mean, that's. I'm very big on Christian tradition. I don't agree with all of it, but I, I'm bound to learn from it as well. You know, if, if you know, I, I, a certainty I have is that God is love. Now, again, what do you mean by God? What do you mean by love? And what do you mean by is right? Those and those are not silly questions. Those are big questions. But still, I think God fundamentally is love and. I mean, Augustine said this, and if you push an idea that's not rooted in love, it's not, it's not a true thought. It's not a good thing. So I have those kinds of how you treat other people, right? What does Christian nationalism do to people? Right? It's, not just, it's, it's not just flying in the face, frankly, of the entire New Testament. It's something that's actually very harmful to other human beings, and therefore it should be denounced, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there, I, I have to play with that, that, that the tension between the two extremes. And I think, to me, that's where, where real theological discussions reside in those very kinds of tensions. And that's just like a sexy thing to say. It's just the reality that we're dealing with, I think, you know.
0: Isaiah, are you still here? You want to come up and ask your question? Um, I'll, some of this is uh, mm-hmm. heady and intellectual and academic, But a lot of this is also very personal and real and emotional, and uh, I I really appreciate Isaiah asking this question. I had to get emotional? Oh, sorry, my bad. I shouldn't. uh... Um, Yeah, my question is just, what does it look like to have a relationship with God then? Like, what kind of relationship is it? You can just answer from your own experience of what does that look like. But Mm -hmm. that's one of the main things that you hear growing up in, in the Christian faith, that it's all about
1: having a relationship with God. right? Um, so yeah, well, I mean, like? I think that's a, that is, in a way, that's like the question, I think. That's where it comes down to our own experience of God and how we connect with our creator given the mystery of, of the creator at the same time. Um, when I hear, I, I bristle when I hear that, not, not because it's a bad question, but because Trauma. You know, backgrounds and churches need to have a relationship with God. Well, that means you do this, 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 and this twice on Sunday. And that's how you establish a relationship. So it's, we're doing everything to sort of make this. It's like, you know, you know in a bad relationship where you've got to always like, do everything to make it work out. And um, I can only say for me, um, a relationship with God means to learn to stop doing that. I mean, I'll give you one example. Um, You know, I mentioned I I wasn't going to church for a while. COVID, I'm sort of an introvert, and Episcopalians exchange the peace. Hmm. How are you? That's good, that's good. C.S. Lewis used to leave the services before they exchanged the peace because he didn't want to do it. So anyway, but it's a good discipline. It gets me out of my head. Anyway, so, um, but I didn't go to church for a while. And then like, about a year later, I'm sitting on the sofa on a Sunday morning, and I'm saying, you really ought to go to church. You should go to church. And I'm tormented for like 20 minutes. Should I go? I, I should go. I should go. I should go. Then I stopped myself for a second. I said, who's telling you that? Is God telling me that? Is those the voices in my head, the performance voices in my head telling me that? So I'm still learning to let go of defining a relationship with God by what I do, and I think the best thing I can do is actually to to work on being as humble as possible, and that I don't control God. And so what I did was I actually made myself a smoothie. I went out to the backyard with a with an umbrella and a chair. And I read Brian McLaren and Barbara Brown Taylor and Thomas Keating for the morning, and I felt very close to God doing that. Right? I'm not saying that everybody should do that. I'm, I'm in church now. I've been back in church for months now. You know, and, and I'm glad I'm there and I have the relationships there and it's good to be in the space. Um, but how I'm cultivating this relationship with God, it keeps changing. Because every time I have it down it gets old real fast. And I've always interpreted that as, see, you're doing it again, Pete. You're trying to, like, wrap your arms around the God thing. If I do this, like, I try contemplative prayer. I try all these practices. And it's like, and it's great for, like, a week or two, but then it becomes a routine that I have to do this. And at that point, you know, no relationship works that way. No relationship works that way. So why are we doing this with God? You know?
0: I'm kind of curious to hear you say that because I'm wondering if your practices sound a little bit derivative of your tradition, but not necessarily of your theology as a panentheist. Mm -hmm. In other words, you feel this impulse. So there's this tradition that you come from that you have to do these particular things to to have a relationship with God. But yet a panentheist wouldn't have those hang-ups. Like if God Mm -hmm. is truly in everything then any experience that you participate in, whether that's reading a book or going mm-hmm. out and, and making a smoothie or having a nice yeah. beer or whatever it is, right, are all part of that mm-hmm. kind of religious experience and having a relationship right. with God. Is it? Is mm-hmm. that something? I'm just kind of curious if that if I'm...
1: Well, I'm, I'm working on how to resolve all this stuff, so you have to give me a little time. Uh, look, we brought you out here for an answer, Pete. <laughs> but the, the, well, that's my answer. So, um, <laughs> but I... A friend of mine is a spiritual director, and we were talking about this years ago. And I just mentioned how much I just like being outside and like splitting wood. And she said, Well, there you go. <laughs> that's something that's meaningful to you, and you can choose to see that within the context of God's presence. I, we have a park by our house. I love walk. I don't have anything in my ears when I take a walk. I just, I'm out there. Okay, this is good. I like, hi, tree. How are you doing? Or hi, dear. Or hi, school. I just, this is all, none of this is here apart from the one by whom all things exist. And the fact that it happens from an evolutionary point of view is immaterial to me. It means nothing. It's just that's the reality that God does this. So finding... It's not finding God. It's acknowledging God's presence in all things. I'm not finding anything. I'm figuring it out. I'm becoming aware, right. Is intentionality important? Yes. For me it is. Yeah, because I I, I go out and I try to... You know, sometimes my mind wanders, but I'm not listening to anything. Like I said, I'm just trying to... To, to pay attention to my breath, the heel-toe of walking, I mean, all this stuff is like, it's beautiful, you know? I mean, I have legs at work, and I can take a walk around a park, you know? And not everybody can do that. Some people, are they're too old, or, or, or they don't have the use of their legs, but, you know, I, I do, and I have my own problems, but um, just living into what I... Believe is there is not a there isn't a subatomic particle in which God is not somehow present, and I get to become more and more aware of that. Like that's that's the right word to use, becoming aware of that, and and that can happen in many different ways. That can happen just reading a book, or just sitting there sometimes, just quietly, and just not having thoughts go through my head. Is is there anything you're pursuing there, or are you just becoming more aware of what's already there? Uh, for, for me right now, I think I'm just trying to, like, um, shut off the brain a little bit, you know, and, and intentionally doing that, which is very hard for me, you know, I'm just, so, I'm so used to being wired in a certain way, but one thing, one thing my brain has taught me is that my brain can't handle this. And so I'm learning to let go of that. You know, I, 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 I remember thinking about this years ago and saying, I wanna honor my head without living in it. Very, very hard to do. But that's, that's see, that's part of my journey. That's why my own notion of, is <laughs> a little thing. Is that yours? Yeah. Control your kid, okay? <laughs> Would you? <laughs> <Is it here? laughs> um it, that's i mean that's you' you're asking a question that I have, to, I have have to give a personal answer to, and that's. Yeah. and i'm not saying i'm not going to write a book, and here's how you have a spiritual life. I would never do that because that's. we're all so different, yeah no two people are the same, so
0: you, you yeah. could sell a lot of them
1: yeah, you know what I'll, I'll get back to you that's a good idea I should yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <well. laughs> So right. I was just going
2: to um, push on that a little bit. Um, when we talk about incarnation and resurrection, mm-hmm. right, and core tenets and things that shape Christian faith, I think there is still something, this was pressed upon me during COVID, yeah. something about the gathering. Uh-huh. And, and how it isn't like, it's, it's Paul, all y'all are the temple yeah. of the Holy Spirit, like you yeah. can't just be the one brick that decides to go out on the hillside on your own. Right. So I think for me at least, it's been a yes and. So I yeah. love going and sitting and reading a right. psalm to a tree. Right. That's like one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. Um, and have always connected to God and nature.
1: Right. But
2: when we stopped meeting together during COVID, yeah. it killed me inside. There was something about not, we went from one week where I got to see everybody. Right. And the, yeah. the next week where I lived in a world where I, all of a sudden I wouldn't see people again. Mm-hmm. So we started, once we had any courage um, and some permission, started doing these thing called sparking lots after a few weeks where we would just <laughs> wave at each other from a distance and like put a care package in somebody's trunk as they went by. Yeah. After the first one, people just kind of got their stuff and left, I had like a reaction. Right. You didn't say goodbye to me. <coughs> mm-hmm. Like there was something about the incarnation of Christ in this community.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That yes. I mm-hmm. only as much as I can experience Jesus on my own and in, mm-hmm. in my own ways and stuff like that, there was and becoming aware of the presence of God, the whole like Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the whole earth is aflame with God's presence, but only those who see it take off their shoes. Mm-hmm. Right. There's mm-hmm. there's something about becoming aware of even the after of God's St. Ignatius Prayer at the end of your day. But to not be in community, to not have the incarnation, the infleshment of Christ Mm -hmm. in our community, was also a loss.
1: Yeah, well Uh, I agree with that. I mean, yeah, I I don't have any issue with that. I think for me, it took me about a year and a half to get to that point. That's all, I mean, I started going back, and I I really started sensing last fall. Okay, Pete, you've had your fun. (laughs) 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 Reading under a tree. but, you know, and it was a community that I had not been a part of before. It gave me a chance to actually switch churches, and there was nothing wrong with the other one. It just, I, 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 I really felt the sense, and these are, these are a lot of men that I know. We belong to a men's group together. So um, it's, it just, I had to get there, you know, and it's like, I know people who like, stop reading the Bible. How dare you? You need the Bible. When you're ready, you're ready and then we can have a different conversation or or anything like that. All these things, I mean, you know, church can become an idol in the sense where we have to go and do this or God's going to be mad at us. There was a
2: nun that said, don't should on yourself. Yes, right. Right? So I should do this, I should do (laughs) that, I should be at church, I should have a quiet time, I should read a Bible, those kinds of things.
1: And those are the voices that have been in our heads for a lot of us most of our lives, you know, and understandably so, they want you to wind up not going to hell when you die, but, you know, it's, it's, um, I I just, I don't know, I don't know if the God of the universe works that way. It just, it doesn't make sense to me, and I could be completely wrong, but I'm being genuine and authentic, and when I say it, that's what I think, and you know, my kids were wrong about me when they were little, trying to figure me out, and like, and I let it slide. You know, I figured God can do that too, right? So, you know, I mean, and I think God's just, I hope God is smiling at us right now, and not like, um, I'm going to get you, you've got a week to put it together, you know, so. You All know. right,
0: it is past 7.30, so um, Angela, we do actually have a Bible question. Is Angela still here? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we got one Bible question, and then we'll, we'll sew it is up.
1: It, is it difficult?
2: No, it's not. And um, I'm excited to be here. I've never been part of a congregation that would ever invite yeah. Pete Enns to come speak. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that as a compliment. Yeah,
1: I appreciate that. Um,
2: yeah. Okay, 2 Timothy, this was preached this uh-oh. morning, says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Yes. Right. Is that right, 2 Timothy? Said, uh-oh. <laughs> but that okay. was said before yeah. the Bible was put together. Correct. I'm assuming. Right. So I'm sure all that Scripture that God breathed into, is not in the Bible. So how do you talk about that?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's that, that passage is used a lot to sort of defend certain ways of looking at the Bible, right? Um, and then we remind people there's no New Testament at that point, right? So that's leaving a good part of it out. But there's a Hebrew Bible. There's a Hebrew Bible, but it's, it's inspired by God, and it's profitable for... What is it, reproof, correction? What's the other two? I always get them mixed up. Training and righteousness. Training and righteousness, it's not for learning whether God created the universe in six days. So it's profitable basically for our spiritual maturation, right? But I want to say, you know, I I've had this discussion so many times with 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 good people that I can really get into it with. But you know, one question comes up is what does all scripture mean? Every verse? Right? Isn't there some scripture that didn't make it to the Bible? Like, I'm thinking, that means there's probably a bunch of stuff out there yeah. that we don't know about Well, there are other ancient books that, that are part of, you know, the, the Orthodox tradition or the Catholic tradition, which are part of the Apocrypha for Protestants, the hidden books. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, it's, it's true that the canon as we know it, the collection of books, wasn't established fully at this point in time. But clearly he was talking about the only scripture they knew, which is the Hebrew Bible, the the Old Testament. That's what they're talking about there. And it's profitable for a number of things, and it is. But then I, I would always tell my students, but watch how the New Testament writers make it profitable. It's by how they read it midrashically again. It's profitable, but not in a proof texting. That's the thing. It's not profitable in a proof texting kind of way. Here's the verse that tells you what to do. You know, there's another verse over here that says something a little bit different. How do we engage that? That engagement is itself profitable, I think, for people. You know,
2: I, I would say the, a keen example of this is, is Jesus in the Gospels, yeah. right? And they'll sort of come up to him and say, "Hey, it's a Sabbath." But you have to circumcise your son because it's also the eighth day from after your son's birth or your donkey's fallen into a well. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to break one of God's commands. Let's, de- let's debate. Yeah. Which one should we break? Should right. we break the Sabbath because it's going to be a lot of work to get my animal out of the well? Yeah. Or should we break the Sabbath because I'm going to have to circumcise my child? Or do I keep the Sabbath and break the command to circumcise right. and take care <laughs> of the animal? Right. So Jesus is in these debates all the time yeah. because part of what we talk about when we say midrashically interpret mm-hmm. is that in early rabbinic there was a discussion about priority of command. Yeah, and so you, they they accepted without debate or discussion that you could not keep all of God's commands at once. Yeah, you can't do it. So we're going to have to order them. What's most important? This is behind the question of what's the most important commandment. Right. And Jesus says what all all the Jews would say: Shema, love God with everything. Right, right? Mm-hmm. number one commandment. But what's the second one? Is it Sabbath? Is it laws of cleanliness? Is it kosher? And mm-hmm. Jesus says, "I oh, know it's actually from Leviticus, yeah, and it's la l'reyacha kamocha. Like, it's a second one, and love your neighbor as yourself." But mm-hmm. those are debates that are happening because it's assumed you can't keep all of God's commands at once. Right. So not what what's behind that is we're not elevating every single letter of Scripture right. as as the one to keep right now. Mm-hmm. It means that in every instance we're having to argue and debate and discuss right. what is the way to please God best right now.
1: And if I can quote the Mandalorian, this is the way. <laughs> um, it is the way, of the, it's the way of faith. It's the way of theology. And, and to recognize that it can be a very beautiful thing where you get to debate and you get to think about it. And maybe God's happy about that. Who knows?
0: That's why I've used the name Via for so long. Yeah. The the way. Um, Thank you, everybody, so much. Pete, Mm -hmm. I want you to close us um, by, uh, I don't know how how to ask this question. I feel as if some of what you're doing is still very evangelistic in the sense that you are spreading the good news about something. Mm -hmm. And what I want you to close us out with with is, after all, the bible tells me so the sin of certainty uh, you know how the bible actually works <clears throat> after all this what is the good news after curveball what is the good news that you want people to know
1: i think it's just that god is real and we get to become aware of that more and more and and, and i know again god in christ is real i would i would i would say that I mean I wouldn't necessarily say it to everybody right but that's my conviction and I get to work out what that means and how that works right but that to me that's that's it and um I've actually been called an apologist which annoys me to no end but I think there's a truth to that too where I'm I'm advocating for something right and and that it's it's all good and it's going to be okay and we don't have to our faith doesn't have to be a burden that we carry it's something that we can Live into and and that gives us joy, you know, and life, yeah, and and just, you know, those moments where even the most anxious and depressed among us just have this moment of lightness. Sometimes it's like, yeah, that's it. I think that's where this is. That's what this is about, you know. To to be fully whole human beings is a good thing, you know. And I think, I you know, humanity created in God's image. I think that's that's. I think ultimately that's what this is about you know
0: friends make sure you pick up a book at the very end and please let's give uh, Peter Enns a big warm Thank thank you thank you